It's this whole yeah, thing about yeah, you like, don't know who my daddy, my daddy right? Is, you know, yeah. let me into this country club. Don't you know my, who my people are? Right? You know, I come from yeah. I come from yeah. high end stock. So yeah, never mind the fact yeah. that my dad did all the work, and I'm driving this Lamborghini that I got as a graduation present. That kind of mentality. <laughs> Welcome to another Do or Die episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swain, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. We're a network of people from every background you can imagine who come into the Catholic faith for every reason you can imagine, including some of the ones we discuss on this series. I'm a former Nazarene Free Methodist, so on and so forth. Ken, you're a former Baptist pastor. Are you ready to get into more of Sola Fide today? Yeah, and I'm starting to wonder when you're going to run out of adjectives. I am a human thesaurus, so... Okay, okay. Human thesaurus rex. Yeah, I'm ready. Uh, You know, we're dealing with uh, a very important objection to what we've been saying uh, here, so um, I'm kind of excited. Yeah, I'm excited to get into it. All right, so we've talked about Paul a little bit, just enough to make the people who are really hung up on this justification question really dissatisfied that we haven't gotten into Galatians and Romans and Philippians. So I guess we got to kind of set the stage for what we had to know before we got into those three letters of St. Paul. The question we're asking today, I mean, we're just going to come right out with it. What does Paul mean when he says that we are saved by faith and not by works, not by works of the law? Because for several weeks now, you and I have been making the point that in Scripture, both faith in Christ and obedience to Christ are presented as conditions for receiving the inheritance of the promised blessings, both of them. But if this is the case, the objection comes, then what in the world does Paul mean when he states explicitly and repeatedly in his writings, by faith in Christ, not by works, lest any man should boast, not by works of the law. So that's what we're looking at, all right? But to start, need to roll the uh, calendar back 500 years again to the time of the Reformation. The Reformation doctrine of justification by faith alone, as everyone knows really, it grew out of Luther's personal struggle. Luther knew that God was righteous. He knew that God demanded righteousness of his people. And since Luther, as well, knew himself to be a sinner, striving to earn God's favor through obedience to God's commandments brought him nothing but continual misery. Now, Deliverance from this life of continual misery, deliverance from this struggle, came as Luther pondered Paul's words, mainly in uh, in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 1, where Paul describes the gospel as, quote, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then 328, where Paul writes, and this is the classic statement, for we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now. Interpreting Paul's words, I believe, through the lens of his own struggle, that is, in the light of his own struggle, in terms of his own struggle, Luther understood Paul to be saying that our justification comes by faith alone, apart from obedience of any kind, apart from the need to strive in any way 
apart from the need to do anything, okay? So it was faith as opposed to obedience. When it comes to how we are justified in the sight of God, faith and obedience came to be viewed by Luther, by Calvin, and by really uh, Protestantism ever since, especially in the Reformed tradition. Faith in Christ and obedience to Christ came to be viewed as in an important way in opposition to one another when it comes to justification. It's either faith or it's works. It's either faith or it's obedience. And any attempt to mix these two together in any way or to make obedience a condition in any way, shape, or form is to destroy the gospel. Quoting now from uh, Reformed Pastor John MacArthur, those who trust in Jesus Christ for, for justification by faith alone receive a perfect righteousness that is reckoned to them, imputed to them, credited to them. Those who attempt to establish their own righteousness or mix faith with works only receive the terrible wage that is due all who fall short of perfection. And this is, this is Catholicism in his mind. <laughs> right. So let me ask you a kind of rhetorical kind of not question, and that is, if you and John MacArthur and all these Reformed pastors believe that, you know, faith alone can save you and not of good that you can do can have any impact on that, how are you still able to get people to come to church on Sundays? Knowing that going to church itself would have no impact if faith alone had already saved them. I mean, did you even consider that question or was it just one of those things that... Well, it's, <laughs> I mean... It's an interesting question, and there is an answer. Uh, you know, if, if Calvin was standing here, he would say, "Well, the those whom Christ has, uh, those whom God has justified by the imputation of Christ's righteousness through faith alone, He also regenerates, and they have the Holy Spirit in them, and they want to come to church, they want fellowship, they want to grow in Christ, they want to be remolded in, into His image." So, um, so that logic, uh, you know, they don't draw that line of logic. They don't of draw the I'm, line of logic that okay, I've been justified. Yeah, I'm asking this as yeah. a Wesleyan to where we were like, yeah, you got to go because, you know, do not give up gathering as some have been in the habit of doing because we believe that yeah. that's one of the good things that you had to do to stay, you know, in the good graces of God. But again, I didn't come from a Reformed Christian tradition, so. Well, that's a good rhetorical question, and it's even a good real question, um, but I'm going to just shove it off for now because it's more a question that we're going to deal with next week and the week after that, I think, okay? Sounds good to okay. me. Last week, you and I spent some time looking at the preaching of Isaiah. Jeremiah, John the Baptist, and Jesus. And we noted something. We noted that in their preaching, faith in God and obedience to God are never set in opposition to one another. Never is there some contrast being drawn between faith in God on the one hand and obedience to God on the other hand. Rather, in their preaching to the Jews of their time, that's important because they were speaking to their fellow. Israelites, especially the Jewish leadership, in their preaching, the contrast that they draw is a contrast between those who trust God and do what he says, faith and obedience, and those who trust in their status as God's chosen people, if you will. Those who trust in their identity as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those who boast, in fact, in the visible badges of this identity. And I'm talking here about those external practices that marked them out or marked them off visibly from the Gentiles, the pagan, the sinners around about them. In other words, circumcision, Sabbath keeping, the temple worship, 
the, the phylacteries, the tassels, the all that good stuff. All of that, okay? Okay, this is the contrast, what I'm saying, that we saw in Isaiah, that we saw in John the Baptist, that we saw in Jeremiah, and that we saw in Jesus. This is the contrast. Not a contrast between faith and obedience, but a contrast between those who humbly trust and obey and those who rely on their status, those Jews that were relying on their status as being the right people. And not and, to muddy the waters too much, you can't just say mm -hmm. that the status of Abraham is like this snow that falls over the top of your, you know, non-law abiding heart, <laughs> right? But, well, no, you remember what Jesus said when they, when, when the Pharisees said to him, we have Abraham for our father. Jesus yes. said, well, if you were the children of Abraham, then you would do what Abraham did. Yeah. Okay. We, we see this contrast very clearly in John's message to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who came to him when he was baptizing in the Jordan. You brood of vipers, John said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance. In other words, John is saying God does care about you trusting him, and he also cares about you obeying him, all right? Bear fruit that befits repentance. Now, here's what he doesn't care about. John continues, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. You know, as is, is, is though all they had to say was, hey, hold on. Look at us. I mean, you know my dad, right? You know, yeah, I mean, and, that's essentially and although what it I'm is. not going to show you right now, I am. I have been circumcised, and I and I am of the children of Israel. John says, "Do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham for our father, for I tell you, God can raise up from stones children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire." Okay, there, there's that contrast. God wants faith and the obedience that flows from faith. What John is contrasting this with is not obedience to God, but it's this sort of self-satisfied, you don't realize who you're dealing with. My I daddy going up your daddy, right? You know, I mean, like, yeah. it's this whole you, thing about, yeah, you like... you don't know who my daddy, my daddy right, is. Right, you know, yeah. let me into this country club. Don't you know my, who my people are, right? You know, I come from, yeah. from yeah. high-end stocks, so... Yeah. Never mind the fact yeah. that my dad did all the work, and I'm driving this Lamborghini that I got as a graduation present. That kind of mentality. In contrast to Luther's interpretation of Paul, as we move forward from Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Jesus to Paul, what I came to believe, Matt, over time, is that when Paul sets faith in opposition to works, which he does a number of times, he is not contrasting faith in Christ with obedience to Christ. He isn't saying that we are justified by faith alone without the need to be obedient to Christ. Instead, I believe within the historical and theological context in which Paul was writing, what he is saying in his own way is essentially the same thing that Isaiah, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, and Jesus were saying in their own way. It's saying essentially, don't just do the right thing. Don't just do what I tell you. Do it with the right disposition. Don't just do it. Do it the right way. And with yep. the right intention. Well, th that's part of it. But he's also saying, don't do these things. Okay, we'll get to that yeah. in just a moment. You'll see. Okay. But of course, um, then this remains to be shown, what I've just said about Paul. First, the historical situation. Remember when Peter first received the call to bring the gospel to Gentiles? It's recorded in Acts chapter 10. And it was a struggle for Peter. In fact, upon entering the house of Cornelius the Gentile, nearly the very first thing that Peter said to him was, and I'm quoting now, you yourselves know 
how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. That's Acts 10, verse 28. As a Jew, Gentiles were considered unclean. Um, Jews had nothing to do with them, nothing at all. Um, so much so that, believe it or not, I mean, Peter's an adult man. He's a fisherman. He, he's grown up, and he has never, ever in his life entered the home of a Gentile. He had certainly never sat down at a table and eaten with a Gentile, okay? There was this radical separation. And because of this, even after the Holy Spirit had fallen on the house of Cornelius, they had been baptized into Christ and become Christians. When Peter traveled back to Jerusalem, we read in the next chapter of Acts, chapter 11, verse 3, quote, that the circumcision party By the way, that's him. not a circumcision party is not a party I'm going to be RSVPing to. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah. I think it means like a political party. A political okay. party. I'm not, I'm not going to RSVP okay. to that. Too. When Peter came back to Jerusalem after the, these events with, at the household of Cornelius, quote, the circumcision party criticized him saying, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Why? Now, once Peter explained all that had happened there, we read in Acts 11, verse 18, that they were silenced, quote unquote, and that they glorified God, quote unquote, saying, quote, then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance unto life. And you almost get this feeling like, well, believe it or not, I mean, as, as impossible as it might be to conceive, I guess God wants Gentiles saved as well. And some people base their whole theology on like everything starts from scratch at that point. And the whole, yes, yes. And the whole concept of salvation history, Acts eleven eighteen, is where everything changes, right? Yes. So Okay, so they accepted what, had happened in Peter's experience, but the problem didn't go away. We know that because in Acts chapter 15, four chapters later, we read in verse 1, but some men came down to Antioch from Judea and were teaching the brethren, that is the, the Gentile converts in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, because of this, the first council of church history was convened in Jerusalem specifically to deal with this issue. In Acts 15, verse 5, we learn a little bit more about those who were stirring up trouble among the Gentile converts in Antioch. And I quote, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, and again, that means like a political party, not like a party that you have to RSVP, all right? Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. Which tells you a few things, among other things, that some of the first Christians were Pharisees, which is kind of yeah, an interesting were, piece. My point is, this is the background to Paul's ministry. Okay, This is what Paul was dealing with throughout his ministry. And Paul was a Pharisee. He had a Pharisaic background, and so he knew sure. it quite well. But this is what he was dealing with, that is certain Jewish believers in Christ mainly who were from the party of the Pharisees, mainly who were from Jerusalem, which was the most conservative center of, of this kind of, um, of this form of Christianity, that this is the problem that he was dealing with all the time, that they were insisting that Gentiles essentially need to become Jewish proselytes, that in order to be saved, they need to be circumcised and they need to begin to live under the Mosaic Code and all that that means. And I want you to notice here, saying this the other way around, Paul wasn't dealing with former Pharisees who were somehow saying, hey, in order to be saved, Gentiles need to 
obey Christ as well as believe in him. That's not what they were saying. Instead, what they were saying was, in order to be saved, Gentiles need to essentially become Jews. They need to be circumcised, and they need to begin to live by the Mosaic Code, Sabbath, food laws, the festivals, all of it. This is what Paul was dealing with. And with this background, what I'm saying is, when Paul, in response to this, says that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, quote unquote, I believe that this is what Paul has in his mind. I don't believe that Paul is separating faith in Christ from obedience to Christ. What Paul is separating is faith in Christ, which includes obedience in his mind, from what these Pharisees were demanding of the Gentile converts. And I think we can see this in Paul's letters, and that's where we're going. I think we can see this in Paul's letters, even in Galatians, in Romans, and in Philippians, the three letters that Protestants look to as most clearly teaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And really a lot changes when you understand how much of Paul's mission was taken up with implementing the reforms of the First Council of Jerusalem. Uh, You know, if you look at the history of the way that church councils take shape over time, uh, up to the present day, for those people who pay attention to even the Second Vatican Council, you know, we're decades removed from it and people are still figuring it out. You're telling me that the First Council of Jerusalem was voted on and done? No, of course it wasn't. And St. Paul is dealing with the fallout from that through his entire ministry. Yes. I mean, it's so strange in itself to think that the first serious theological controversy in Christianity and Christian history, and the first council was called to solve this problem, that Pharisaic believers are demanding that Gentiles become Jews in order to be saved. You would think that like Jesus would have left that in the cliff notes. It's also kind of getting back to some of the other things we were saying about baptism is this is sort of the trust that Jesus puts in the church by putting men in charge of it. It's them and the Holy Spirit who've got to figure yeah. this stuff out. To be led into the truth. Okay, let's begin with Galatians then. Paul's epistle to the Galatians begins with a roar. I am astonished, Paul writes, that you are so quickly deserting him who has called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. So once again, this, th- this same theme that we have seen before. Um, there are false teachers who are troubling these people, just like, in, just like in, in Acts chapter 15. Okay, There are false teachers who have come along who are troubling these Gentile converts and leading them astray. So let's ask the question first, who are these false teachers? Can we learn something from their description within the epistle to the Galatians? Well, let me walk through a couple of details. Because Paul tells us a lot about them. In chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul mentions them as those who, quote, slipped in to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Okay? They've come in and they want to bring these Gentile converts into bondage. Well, what does he mean? Well, in the same context, Paul mentions how they were apparently demanding that Titus, his Gentile companion in the ministry, be circumcised. Ah, here we are again. Okay, they've slipped in. They want to bring these Gentile converts into bondage. They're demanding that they be circumcised. It's the bondage of the law, right? In verse 12, he identifies them as being, here's that phrase, of the circumcision party. There that phrase occurs again. 
Bring a king. So, so we know a bit about who they are now. They're from the circumcision party. They've come in. They want to bring these Gentile converts into bondage. And this bondage has something to do with the Mosaic law. In fact, he describes how when they came from James, which means, again, they came from Jerusalem, the most conservative center, the center of this kind of uh, apostate teaching. When they came from James, Paul says, Peter, fearing them, separated himself from the Gentile believers and wouldn't eat with them anymore. Now, that makes sense to me. Now, maybe I would bring a cake to the circumcision party if I was a Gentile, <laughs> because then the Pharisees wouldn't have eaten any. They're in more for me. Uh, okay, there you go, man. But I got to work to keep this on track <laughs> um, <laughs> with all the party jokes. I got to work. Okay, but you get the picture here, okay? These are people who came from James. They're, uh, they're from the circumcision party. They've come to trouble these Gentile converts to bring them into bondage. The circumcision is a big part of it. In verse 12, he, he identifies them. They're from the circumcision party. And guess what? When they came to town, Peter was so thrown off his game that he, uh, he feared them and he quit eating. He wouldn't sit down with the Gentiles. So again, it has to do with these Jewish mosaic precepts. Now, putting this all together, it, it really appears, and I think this is simple, what Paul was facing in Galatia is essentially the very same thing that he and Barnabas and Peter and the others were facing in Acts 15 when they called the Council of Jerusalem. We have Jewish converts, probably from the party of the Pharisees. They've apparently come to Galatia. They're insisting that the Galatian Christians be circumcised and begin living by the code of Moses. This is the same situation. And when Paul responds to them in Galatians 2.16 by saying, and again, a classic passage, Quote, we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. I believe, again, that this is what Paul has in mind. Not, Paul does not have in mind some generalized, hey, we're justified by faith, not by obedience. You know, just by faith in Christ, not obedience to Christ. He, it's, it's much more specific. We're justified by faith in Christ, not by what these false teachers are telling us we have to do. In fact, I think we can see this in Galatians itself, because if we ask ourselves the question, Matt, what does Paul mean by works of the law? And we look through his letter to the Galatians for hints, for specifics, notice what we find. We find Paul talking about circumcision, and I mean repeatedly. We don't have time to read them all, but I mean like seven or eight or ten times he goes back to this issue of circumcision. We find Paul talking about Jews not sharing table fellowship with Gentiles. That is the whole Peter episode and Barnabas, who was carried away as well. We find Paul talking about the Jewish festivals and the annual feasts. In fact, at one point, in exasperation, he cries out, quote, to the Gentile, I mean, to the Galatian, his Galatian readers, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. And then uh, the high point of the letter for me, in another passage, he says that he wishes those who were troubling them, he wishes that they would slip with a knife and mutilate themselves. Yikes. I'd rather save that knife and just use it on that cake I brought to the circumcision party. <laughs> Again, man, <laughs> you're making me have to think so hard. <laughs> Sorry about that. Sorry about that. That's okay. But I mean, think about it. He wishes they would take the knife and to slip and mutilate themselves. So, I mean, it, this is a big deal. He's basically portraying these false teachers as coming into Galatia with a knife in their hand, you know, with a flint knife. Ready saying, to circumcise. Yeah. And saying, get ready. 
this is what you got to do to be saved. Okay, Paul isn't contrasting, I'm saying, he's not contrasting faith in Christ with obedience to Christ in this letter. In fact, he nearly concludes his letter, as we saw last time, by saying, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. He who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not grow. You know, he concludes his letter by basically saying, hey, look, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. If you want to reap the harvest of eternal life, you need to persevere in doing good and not give up. In between that passage where he's talking about the knife slipping in Galatians 4, Ken, and also this piece in Galatians 6 where he's talking about persevering in faith, you got that marvelous passage in Galatians 5 around verses 22 and 23 where he's talked about all the what the works of the flesh are, you know, and they're not good. But then he goes on to say, but the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. And how do you know if someone's bearing the fruits of the Spirit? You watch how they act. So obviously there's an obedience factor that goes. Yeah. The, the obedience living by the Spirit produces obedience of faith. Uh, yes. you know, he's obviously not trying to divorce those two concepts. Amen, yeah. That's a great passage where he just fills out what is meant by the works of the flesh or sowing to the flesh, and he fills out what is meant by sowing to the Spirit. And that's what he says we have to do if we want to inherit eternal life. Okay, how about Paul's epistle to the Romans? And we're moving quickly, and I have to really focus, but let me say this. It's the same as in Galatians. It's, it's the same. And let me break it down in the simplest of ways. Chapter 1 of Romans, Paul establishes that Gentiles need salvation. That's what chapter 1 is about. In chapter 2, he turns to the Jews, and he says, basically, but so do Jews. Okay, Jews need salvation. And, and, and here's the key. In the way in which Paul addresses his Jewish readers in chapter 2 and then following, it becomes clear that he anticipates the same attitude that Isaiah and Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Jesus confronted. He anticipates from his Jewish readers, at least from many of them, an attitude which says, but we have Abraham, but, but we have Abraham for our father. Now, this would explain Many things, Matt. This would explain why Paul launches out in the way he does in Romans 2.17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast of your relationship with God, you see how he just come, it comes out of the chute? It's like he's anticipating that they have this attitude of, we are the descendants of Abraham. We've got it made in the shade. And, and so he just launches at them. If you call yourself a Jew, there's, there's kind of all kinds of um, sarcastic overtones here and you rely on the law of Moses, and you boast in your relationship with God. This also would explain what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 25. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. Hear, hear the tone there? I mean, yeah, if you're obedient to God, if you trust God and are really obedient to him, like Noah was, Abraham was, all those saints of the Old Testament, then yeah, circumcision has value. But he, again, he imagines a a readership that is thinking our circumcision puts us in the right relationship with God, period. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm circumcised. Yeah, and he goes, yeah, circumcision has value if you obey the law. And then in verse 28 and following, quote, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
nor is true circumcision something external and physical. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and real circumcision is a matter of the heart. So, and, and I could go on because there's so much about it. This would also explain why, there's a strange passage, why he would spend a good deal of chapter 4 making this elaborate argument about how Abraham was declared righteous and declared to be God's friend by faith before he ever received circ- circumcision. And you yet know? he received circumcision anyway, right? Yeah, as a sign of that. As a sign of that. But, uh, but, it's, but it's, it's clear then that what Paul is anticipating is this crowd of Jews in Rome that he's writing to who are thinking, um, I've got it. I've got it made in the shade because I am a, of the right race and I bear the right symbols in my body. I have all those uh, boundary markers that set me off from the filthy Gentile nations roundabout. Paul knows that many of his Jewish readers believe that they have it made with God because of who they are. And as in Galatians, Paul is intent upon making them understand this isn't what matters with God. And also, you have to believe, too, that, you know, if the 12 apostles and if Jesus himself are all coming from Jewish lineage and every, all these people are coming into the church from everywhere, is there, well, what goes on in churches today where there's certain kind of levels and statuses that automatically people get into about, you know, these are for the first class, you know, mm-hmm, churchgoers, mm-hmm. these are the second class co- churchgoers, and that stratification breeds division in the body of Christ. And you can see how Paul would very much want to say, no, table's level. The cross yeah, and of that's Christ why, makes us all on the same page. And that's why in a passage that we didn't read uh, um, in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, those who have been baptized into Christ, there is no more Jew or Gentile, no more male or female, no more slave or free. We are all one in Christ. And heirs, and uh, and we are all children of Abraham by faith in Christ. Okay, so... In other words, though, if we look at these details, Matt, in Romans, I think we can see, again, the background or what he's anticipating that many of his Jewish readers will be thinking or have thought about about themselves. And in that context, in Romans 3.28, when Paul makes his classic statement, for we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, here's a question that I would like to ask sincerely of any Protestant, anyone from the Reformed tradition listening to this podcast or this video, here's the question. If what Paul means here by works of the law is what Luther took him to mean, obedience to Christ, obedience of any kind, why does Paul immediately ask the rhetorical question in verse 29, or is God the God of Jews only? Okay, this is something subtle but powerful. Let me read it again. Paul 3, 28 and 29, For we hold that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? If Paul intends in 3.28 to be setting faith in Christ over against obedience to Christ, if what he's talking about is obedience to Christ, obedience of any kind when he says works of the law, okay? then why does Paul immediately write, or is God the God of Jews only? I mean, clear, here's my point. Clearly, in Paul's mind, works of the law has something to do with being Jewish. It's about being Jewish. Or, and he would never say that. We're saved by faith, not by works of the law. Or, or is God the God of the Jews only? 
by works of law, he means circumcision, the food laws, keeping the, uh, keeping the Mosaic code, dot, dot, dot. That's what he means. I don't believe that Paul is saying here what Luther and Protestantism since have understood him to be saying. Not at all. This is why Paul can reject the works of the law, strongly reject works of the law, and then turn around and say things like he says in Romans 2, verse 6, for God will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by patience in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You cannot take the word works and apply it to both circumcision and serving the poor. You cannot take this no. big bucket and say works means observing dietary laws. It means observing festivals and feasts. It also means um, caring, for the widow, caring for the widow and orphan. These are two different kinds yeah. of things that St. Paul is talking about. Two kinds of works, like I like we said last week. Two kinds of obedience. Two separate things. And let's look at one final passage from Philippians. And in the light of what we've seen, in chapter 3 of Paul's letter to the Philippians, we find a passage that is taken within Reformed circles as near proof of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, apart from obedience. But in the light of what we've seen in Galatians, and what we've seen in Romans, I want those. Li- I, I I encourage those listening to to listen carefully to what Paul says here, and I think a lot of overtones will start bouncing off the um, the passage that 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 maybe weren't seen as clearly before. Here's Paul quote: Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me, and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who does he have in mind? <laughs> the circumcisers, the circumcision party. The guys with their flinty knives once Ready again. Ready to come to make it a not very fun party. And Paul is very much against them. He calls them dogs. Which he is weird because that's what, evil the, workers. that's what the Jews would have called the Gentiles, right? Yeah, it's like a reversal, a little reversal Right, there. right. So Paul's definitely using a play on, he's referring to something pretty specific. Hey, you've made up for all your party, uh, you know, analogies now. Oh, I may have that. some more. That, that's a good thing. Okay, listen. We know who he's talking about then again. He's talking about the guys with their flinty knives. And then he goes on to say, for we are the true circumcision, which, which seals the deal. We know exactly what he's talking about now. We are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If any man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Okay, so now he's talking about those who put confidence in the flesh. These are the guys with their knives. These are the guys from the circumcision party. This these is a are very the specific are, kind of flesh. These are the guys that are yeah. coming to mutilate the flesh. Okay, and he says, I also, if anybody wants to put confidence in that kind of thing, I'm the king. I also have grounds for putting confidence in the flesh. And does he mean by this, I have confidence, uh, does he mean by this that I loved God and was obedient to him as well? No. He says, if any man thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And I want to say, 
What does he mean by righteousness under the law, blameless? There's no way that what Paul has in his mind is, when I was a Pharisee back in those days, I fulfilled the moral law. I loved God with all my heart, and I loved my neighbor as myself. He's talking and, about the feasts and, 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 and the dietary laws and all that other stuff, right? Yeah, and I now reject that, and I call it refuse. Loving God, loving my neighbor, that's refuse. No, he's, he's talking about what you just said. He's talking about the works of the law. He's saying, in accordance with these kinds of external things, I was blameless. Then re, uh, continuing with Paul, but whatever I had gain, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them refuse in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ. And we ought to know what he means by that now, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but that which is through faith in Christ. You know, what's funny, Ken, is that what you just read is often cited by reformers, or the reformed tradition in terms of this whole question of faith alone. Mm -hmm. um, from the Calvinists, more Lutheran perspective. What's funny is that the passage, the verses that directly follow this passage were often cited in my Wesleyan holiness tradition as evidence that you it wasn't just faith alone necessarily, and you mm -hmm. could lose your salvation, but because Paul goes immediately out of that into saying, yeah. not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, a response, right? Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, right? Mm -hmm. For which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That has response and yes. action and yes. perseverance and stick it through to the end written all over it. And this has to, this has an important, I mean, this has importance when we come to defining justification in the weeks ahead, because he says, not having a righteousness of my own, this stuff that he's been naming, right? Right. Circumcised of the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, blah, blah, I have Abraham as my father. Okay. Um, and, but instead possessing righteousness from Christ and the way he goes on to describe that then is to know him to be found in him, to be growing in him, to be striving. But it, but anyway, yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Okay, to wrap up, there are three very short passages in Paul that I think virtually demonstrate that the interpretation that I've given here to what Paul meant by the phrase works of the law is the correct interpretation. Okay, three very short passages, because three times in Paul's writings, he tells his readers exactly what doesn't count with God and exactly what does count with God, okay? So you, you couldn't become more clear. He's going to tell us exactly what doesn't count with God and exactly what does count. And, and, and they all parallel one another in a very interesting way. First is Galatians 5, 6, where Paul says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail, but faith working through love. It isn't a matter, Paul tells the Galatians here, it isn't a matter of whether one is circumcised or not. That whole issue doesn't matter. What matters is faith working through love. Second one is Galatians 6, verse 15, where Paul says, 
For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. What, what counts with God, Paul says here, is, is not being Jewish, but being a new creation in Christ. Because in Christ there's no more Jew or Gentile. It, it doesn't matter. And then, okay, there's one more passage like this where Paul uses similar language. And this is the passage that I think really puts the nail in the coffin of thinking that by works uh, and works of the law, Paul is talking about obedience to the commandments of God in some generalized sense. It's 1 Corinthians 7.19, and this is the passage that really hit me like a stone, you know, David's stone in the forehead, when I first thought about what it says. Quoting Paul now, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. That's what counts. Okay. Here, Paul actually sets obedience to the commandments of God over against circumcision. Obedience to the Mosaic law, the specific, yeah. <laughs> the specific works of the law that were supposed to provide salvation. Yeah. Yes. He, he, he sets obedience to the commandments of God as being the opposite of circumcision. In Paul's thinking, obedience to the commandments of God is the very opposite of thinking um, what I need is to wear the visible sign of circumcision. Show my ID at the door, right? And then I'm in. The guy, the bouncer will let me in because I have a, a, a good ID. Yeah. <laughs> the bouncer with his knife. Yes. Yeah. His flint knife. You're not allowed yeah. inside the circumcision, circumcision party. <laughs> this is like getting weird, but I, 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 I'm thinking of the bouncer that instead of stamping your hand. Okay. Well, now that's way worse than my uh, cake jokes. <laughs> okay. Well, to sum up then, to conclude very simply, according to Paul, these three wonderful little statements that he makes about circumcision, you know, and uncircumcision. According to Paul, what counts with God is that we have become new creatures in Christ, that we've become new creations in Christ, that we possess a faith that works itself out in love, and that we keep the commandments of God. That's what counts. That's what matters to God. That's what avails with God. This is what Paul says flat out is to be a new creation to have a faith that works in love, and to keep the commandments of God. I believe that the mistake that Luther made, I put it this way, the mistake that Luther made was to read Paul through the lens of his own experience and within the context of what he was dealing with at the time, this, this stress, this struggle over feeling that he had to earn God's favor through obedience. Rather than reading Paul through the lens of Paul's experience, and within the context of what Paul was dealing with at the time. That's, in essence, the, the kind of the key to the mistake, I believe, that, that leads to a false doctrine of justification by faith alone. Justification doesn't come by works of the law. That's what Paul's saying. It doesn't come about because one has Abraham as his father. As Jesus explained to the Pharisees, it's about trusting in Christ. It's about walking in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, as Paul says in many, many places over and over. And he says it in continuity with all those Old Testament prophets you mentioned with John the Baptist. You know, don't think that you can just presume that you have the externals. You know, it, it, what's what's in your heart? Um, what, why is it that you're here? You know, what mm -hmm. is it that you think that I'm actually asking of you when I ask you to do these things? I mean, that's, a, that's yes. a big part of this conversation. So then what's next for our conversation on the next episode then, Ken? Well, the, the direction that we have to go really is to get into uh, 
defining the term justification. You know, what do we mean by justification? What does the Bible mean by it? What does it mean to be justified? We've been we've spent these weeks looking at the whole idea of faith and obedience and how they relate to one another. And so what I want to do next week is I want to, in a sense, try to sum up the whole thing about faith and obedience and how they relate and why they relate the way they do, um, and then move into um, the question of defining justification. So we got a few more weeks to go. We got a lot deeper to dive into this because justification, once you get going on it, with a reformed person, it's like getting involved in a land war in Asia, right? You know, I mean, you get uh, there's a lot there's a lot to dig into. In the meantime, Ken, I always appreciate these conversations, and if you appreciate them, then definitely click the subscribe button and uh, catch more episodes of On the Journey with Matt and Ken by going to chnetwork.org. Spread the word, invite your friends into the conversation, and we would love to hear from you, especially if you have any level of interest in the Catholic Church. Visit us at the Coming Home Network, chnetwork.org. Ken, thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. You too.